Tonight we're going to talk about Colossians 3. <clears throat> and this is where, um, this is where, you know, Paul takes the classic Paul turn into the concrete, the uh, application, the, the life as it's lived in the day-to-day uh, issues of life. Um, but he's not moving on from theology. You know, I think sometimes there's a mistake to say, all right, well, there's theology, and then there's practical application. But um, really, theology is useless without practical application. And practical application is futile without constantly being informed by theology. So there's not, there's not a difference. There's not a line between, you know, Paul isn't moving from one subject to the other. He's moving to a different angle of the same subject, okay? Um, particularly, and uh, by the way, T, uh, TCF went through Colossians in kind of a piecemeal way over the last several months, and uh, you can go look up their podcast for some additional teachings on kind of smaller sections of Colossians. Uh, Kelly Hahn and Chad kind of rotated through. Um, so great, great to supplement uh, what we've been going through. Um, but one of Chad's things, he's always... Uh, pointing out, and I, I heard him speak on it wasn't Colossians, but he spoke on the just the, the topic of ascending and descending. Has anybody ever heard Chad Grissom talk about ascending and descending? That that that's really um, one of the things that we as humans are created for. You know, we are meant to ascend into the presence of God, but not to remain there, but to also descend from the presence of God and bring that presence to the world, into the earth. And Adam on the Sabbath was to ascend and, and to, you know, to have this, have this weekly rhythm of ascending and descending. And that's all through Scripture. You know, you see in, in Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, there's angels ascending and descending. Um, uh, Jesus obviously was the supreme example of this. He descended to earth and then he ascended to the Father. Um, but then the, he sends the Holy Spirit. Again, kind of a descending. All right, so ascending and descending... Uh, this really, the whole section is about um, that, you know, how we take this truth about who we are in Jesus, how we understand the reality as it is in heaven, and then how we live in that reality here on earth, right? We pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're not meant to escape to heaven, uh, we are meant to ascend to heaven and then to descend and bring heaven into earth. And that is our, that's always been our, our vocation as human beings. Now, sin put a, uh, threw a wrench in that process, and we became incapable of bringing heaven into the earth. And instead, what we brought into the earth was what we thought up ourselves. And it ended up being terrible, right? We, we, we lived according to our own passions, and lo and behold... One of my favorite books is, uh, is this children's book called uh, This is What Would Happen If Everybody Did. Um, it's an amazing book about uh, just how if you as an individual, your choices in it as an individual, if you say, all right, let's say everybody made this choice as an individual, it just brings <laughs> havoc and destruction. And it's very humorous. You know, it's like uh, squeeze the cat. This is what would happen if everybody did. It's just this picture of this cat that's like just, you know, squeezed and uh, really funny illustrations. But it's a great book. Um, a sit on dad, you know. This is what would happen if everybody did. It's this big pile of people and this just paper thin human being underneath the pile. But it's a great, it's a great, uh, what are we talking about? Oh, human beings chose... Individual choice over God's wisdom and living in alignment with God's wisdom. And, and when they did that, although it seemed right to them in the moment, in a particular situation, they had no idea uh, the destruction that it would cause. Uh, well, they did because God had warned them, but they didn't really understand what that meant. Um, okay, so this is what we're coming out of. Right? This is, this is, that is the way of the old man. That's the way of old humanity. That is the way that, uh, that Christ, as the representative Israelite and as the representative human being, 
That is the way of life that was put to death in the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Everything that God thought about that way of life was fully expressed in the suffering and death of Jesus, right? And that was the death of the old man. Um, And then everything that God loved about Jesus and his obedience and how he fully uh, fulfilled God's purpose for human beings, he raised up out of the grave and said, this is it. This is the life. And we start here now. Chapter 1 says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so now humanity starts over at Jesus. Okay? So that's what he's been trying to unpack and, and saying, you guys need to understand. You have everything that you need if you're in Christ. And he is in you. Because, um, well, we'll just dive, dive in here. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... All right, there's the understanding. We have been raised. We have ascended with Christ. Because he is the representative human being, as it goes with Christ, so it goes with you if you are in Christ. That makes sense? And so we're not waiting to ascend to heaven. We have ascended to heaven. Mankind has ascended. There is now a man on the throne of heaven, ruling over all the heavens and the earth. And we are, in, we are part of the humanity that Jesus represents. Does that make sense? If we're in him. Okay. We've been raised. That's the reality. That's the ultimate truth. That's as it is in heaven. All right? If we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above that are above, not on things that are on earth. Okay, what does that mean? It doesn't mean um, long to escape from this terrible place. No, it means order your reality, order your, your understanding of reality based on heaven and live according to that reality here on earth. All right, so we set our minds. We, you could say one way of putting it would be we form our identities by setting our minds on things above. We understand ourselves. We come into understanding of who we are. We come into an understanding of who God is. We come into an understanding of all the big questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? All of those big questions begin and end with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the answer to all those things. And that is what our minds now That is what our interpretive lens for all of life, that's what it is, on earth as it is in heaven. So we've been raised, and now it says, for you have died. Just like we are a part of Christ and, and, and our humanity has ascended to heaven, the old humanity has died with Christ. It has been killed, and it has been buried. For we have died. And so now we live in this state of, of uh, already but not yet. We've talked about that a lot as we've talked about Paul. You know, he he is, is concerned with how do we live in the, in the reality of, of Christ? How do we live in that new creation reality while we still look around and we see, well, not every, everything's not as it should be yet how so what do we how do we do that do we try and just do we want to avoid all that no 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 we are actually bringing the new creation into the earth and we are ushering the old age out right so our life our lives right now still look somewhat the same right we're still I mean, when you go into the waters of baptism and you're raised, you don't look drastically different physically. um, But you have completely changed. Your identity has completely changed. You are a new kind of human being. All right. And we live in the hope of one day we will look drastically different and we have we will have a resurrection body. So just as Jesus Christ was transfigured. And. 
they saw kind of a, a preview of this glorious person who, who wasn't just the you know, first century Jew um, who had all the same kind of weaknesses as it, and frailties as we do. No, this is the Jesus that's coming back. So it says, our life, our real life, you could say, our true life is hidden. And it hasn't, it had, we haven't seen the full reality of it yet. But we know it's awesome, right? So our life is hid with Christ. And in the same way, it says, and when Christ, who is your life, again, this union is so strong all the way through Colossians that we are united with Christ. He, sometimes he says he's in you. Sometimes he says we are in him. He in us, we in him. It's this union that we have with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our true self will be uncovered, just in the way that Jesus' resurrection glory will be uncovered. And when his is uncovered, ours will be uncovered, and we will all, the whole earth will know the sons of God. Right? So it's, it's this weird stage of time between the ages where the old one's passing away and the new one has been initiated, but it hasn't yet come to its, its consummation, its fullness yet. And so I think one big point here for us to, to take away is that um, every human being who is in Christ is a, is a glorious creature. And just like Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, or maybe 2 Corinthians, that we don't regard one another according to the flesh anymore. Right? We really don't regard anyone according to the flesh because that's not the reality. Um, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, and this is a familiar quote um, for, for many of us, he says uh, like this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That's the reality of it. Right? And, and the, that's from the weight of glory. He's talking about just how, how infinitely more glorious eternity is than this passing phase in which we, we live in this already but not yet reality. This is not our reality. Our reality is the eternal glorious reality. And so we walk around and we're all hidden. We're like... It's kind of a strange example, but we're like a sleeper cell. You know? When the trumpet sounds and when Christ returns, it becomes very clear who the glorious sons and daughters of God are. And it becomes very clear who is not. All right, but in this meantime, we kind of live in this sort of matrix reality. You know? um, <laughs> that, got, that got Mike's attention. <laughs> he was kind of bored back there and he did all right so then he gets uh we get a couple classic pauline lists of sins and uh i think some people really like these because i i kind of like them because it it really puts a name to some of these things um nt wright says it's far easier to drift into a sin which one does not know by name than to consciously to choose one whose very title should be repugnant to a Christian. Right? So I kind of like when he names these things that describe, and these lists are describing not just uh, pet peeves of God for whatever reason he decided. That's not what these lists are. These are things that work against what it means to be a human being. These are the things that distort the image of God in the same way that all those, those ancient sins did in the days of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah. These are the things that come in and rob us of our ability to image God, to reflect who he is. And there's two lists. 
And one is primarily aimed at uh, sexual sin, and the other one is aimed at sins of anger. And those are the same, you know, it's, it's really just a list describing all the different angles of sexual sin and sins of anger. It's interesting that he includes these two things. Um, and I think they're both really important. Um, obviously, sexual purity, I mean, we, we are sort of um, in a, you know, if you live in the Bible Belt, you're aware of these things. And if you are conservative evangelical, this is a very, you're very aware of, of sins of sexual immorality. Um, but he's just as interested in talking about these sins of anger, which are, which are kind of in, less, um, less socially repugnant in some circles of Christianity, but probably really should be more socially repugnant. And very, you know, we should really loathe these aspects of, of anger that creep up in our hearts because they do rob us of our humanity. Let me walk through these lists. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And um, really, he's, he's, this whole thing is like a metaphor of the old man, the old, and it's just anthropos. It's the old humanity, the old human being uh, versus the new humanity. Okay, Put to death what is earthly in you. If you have the ESV, you have a footnote that says your members that are on the earth. Right? And he talks about these things that are like this old, these, these aspects of the old man that are like dead limbs that need to be amputated. That's really what he's talking about here. Um, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality is, and the word there is just the catch-all term for any sexual activity that's outside of the covenant of marriage. And it's from where it's the word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography. It's just sexual <laughs> sexual activity outside of the God prescribed context. Okay, um, that's what it is. He says, "Put to death what's earthly in you, sexual immorality." But then he says, "Impurity," and impurity is the state of being unclean that results from sexual immorality. Passion, um, this, is, this can be, it's, it's just pathos in Greek, um, but it's specifically the, the sexual urge here. Evil desire, and this is, um, this is like a, a craving, a longing. A, it's like kind of, when I think of when I, in the uh, wilderness, when it says that the, there was a rabble among them, they had a craving, right? And they started just saying, we want the kind of food we had in Egypt. And they just, their craving took over them. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. Evil desire, just this craving where you want it and you just can't, it just becomes the driving motive of your life. I think craving is a good word. It's a disordered craving. Um, and then he says covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so what he's done here is he's moved from specific to the general, or more, I should say, he's moved from the, the outwardmost expression to the innermost uh, cause of this sin. Okay, the sin of sexual immorality. Well, it's not enough to just stop and put, a, put an end to sexual immorality, he says, if you're going to put, a de- put, to, put these things to death, what you have to do is you have to back up to the source, right? If, if your arm is, is full of gangrene, you can't just cut off a thumb. You've got to go all the way to where the infection starts. And he tells us where the infection starts. It starts with idolatry. All of these things begin with idolatry, which is placing something other than God at the center of your attention and devotion. That's what idolatry is. When you place something other than God, such as a gift from God, a good thing from God that he created for man and woman to enjoy with one another within the covenant of marriage, taking that thing out of its context and, and, and out, of its, out of its place 
in God's created order and isolating it and said, I like just this, but without anything else, just isolating it. And I crave it and I long for it and it drives me. That is idolatry. It's not just wrong because it's sexually immoral and God thinks that's icky. It's wrong because it means that our hearts have been turned away from him in a profound way. So he backs up to the source in this list of sexual sin. And he says sexual morality has, has really comes from the impurity and you've, you've, your life has become tainted and oriented around these things. And it has to do with your desires and it's because you have these cravings and they've been directed in a, in a different way and you've allowed the craving actually to supplant the lordship of God in your life. And that's, that's, that's why you're in the state that you're in. And so he says, put these things to death. And again, putting these things to death means finding the root and cutting off all supply, right? It's, it's like the military tactic of, of cutting off the supply line, right? There's the front line battle, but then if you are cutting off the supply line to your enemy, well, eventually they're not going to have any bullets left to fire, you know, and it's just going to die. It's going to dry up and be, be very easy to conquer. So he says, you have got to find that. What's the supply line for these things and cut that off? I also think of Jesus's instruction in this area in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, if you if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's hyperbolic language. But what does he mean? He says, go to the source. Figure out what the source is. And Paul here takes us to the source. And he says, it's because you've allowed something to capture your attention and your devotion more than God himself. And so you need to come back to relating to God as the one in your life. And that is how you put to death what is earthly in you. Another N.T. Wright quote. Every Christian, he says, has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him. And I think often we just investigate the sins and we feel bad about the sins. But we don't really take the effort and say, what, are the, what is feeding this sin? What is feeding this sin? And how can I starve it? You know, how can I go back to the lifeline? Whatever sins are defeating him and to cut them off without pity. <laughs> That's what he says. This is a death sentence. You know, I think of this, the, the parts of Joshua where it's you know, a decree of utter destruction. Don't leave anything there. Don't leave any of the lifelines. Don't, don't allow anything to feed sins in your life. He says, because, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. And, we, and, and it has come in the past, and it's going to come in the future. For anyone who does not uh, leave it behind and put on Christ. And the wrath of God here is very different than the, the anger that he's going, and he actually uses the word wrath again, for humans as something to shun. The wrath of God is nothing like what he's about to condemn in, in a couple verses later. This wrath of God is, uh, is really fierce love and desire for human beings to be what he created them to be. And so anything that comes and disfigures that and maims that, of course God is, is very angry at that. And his wrath says, no, this cannot be. You must leave. You cannot be here because you are bringing death and destruction on what is good and beautiful in my world. And it's so it's God's persistent stance toward those things that disfigure humanity and, and creation. And he says, these things you, you, uh, you once walked. But this is, you know, in Christ they were put to death. And now you, where, where these things had staked little outposts in your life, you need to find those and also put them to death. 
But now you must put them all away. And then he turns to anger. And that's the big sin. The first one's porneia. This one is anger. And that's just a general state of kind of smoldering in anger. Just having an angry disposition. Wrath. So anger is kind of a, just a persistent state. Wrath is, is a moment of breaking out. Or uh, other translations say rage. You know, who likes dude perfect? It's the rage monster, right? It suddenly gets to a boiling point and overflows and rah, right? That's rage. Breaking out in deeds or, or words. I think especially words here Paul is, is concerned with because he talks about lips later on. But this is, there's a seething anger, but then there's a breaking out moment of rage. Malice. Malice is, um, I think we need to think long and hard about malice. Because malice is intent to harm. And, you know, you can say, oh, I don't think, I'm I'm not a malicious person. I'm I'm a pretty nice person. That's some of the nicest people can intend the most harm. (laughs) Right? Um... I think being passive-aggressive is malicious because the intent is to harm. The intent is to get at that person a little bit, right? That's malice. Slander is spoken malice. It's words that you really kind of hope that they... Put that person down. You know, you hope that this person that you're talking to looks a little bit less on that person, right? That's, that's malice. I don't like this person. I'm going to use words in talking to another person to, I mean, in some way, sometimes it's, it's blatant. I can't, can you believe that? Oh, my goodness. But in some time, sometimes it's, it's not so blatant and it's really sneaky. And we got to be careful. We got to search our hearts for this. The slander, what's translated slander here, is actually the word blasphemy. Blasphemy is usually saying things that, that um, you know, bring God down, saying things against God, accusing God or something like this. So why would slander be blasphemy? Because that person's created in the image of God. And when you slander someone, when you intend harm upon someone, you intend harm upon God. And so slander is blasphemy. Right? You are speaking against God in whose image that person has been created. Obscene talk, that's just dirty talk. <laughs> it's just words that are not, it's just either they mean harm or they're just that the subject matter is just filthy, right? Um, our words are not meant to perpetuate the kind of filth that God does not want in his good creation. Uh, and obscene talk from your mouth. I really think that many of these could be from your mouth. You know, I don't know of anyone that struggles with wounding other people in this church on a regular basis. Maybe a couple of my children. Um, it's, a different, it's a different topic. Um, but we don't do it with our fists, but we do it with our words. And you know, I think we, sometimes we see, we read ancient literature about all the bloodshed and the fighting. We're like, oh, this is so uncivilized. But we do the same thing. We do the same thing with our mouths. Right, we throw spears. We throw so we 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 really just stab people in in the heart with our words, and that's why Christ was so. He was so clear about this when he um, taught about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "You've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I tell you, 
you got to back way up. If you really want to understand the righteousness of God, there's going to be no angry intent towards your brother. You're not going to say anything bad about him. You're not going to curse people. Because um, that is what he is gathering up and casting out of his kingdom into utter darkness. Because there's no place among the people of God, among the family of God for that. Don't lie to, to one another. Again, this is words. Don't lie to one another. And when we are in a state of, of perverted, distorted humanity, we have to lie. Um, we have to lie to one another. We have to stretch facts to fit. Well, here's, here's Jesus and here's me. And we, we lie to Why do we lie? Because we want to appear a certain way to people. We don't, want to, we don't want to cut these things off out of our lives. And so instead, we just cover over them with words. And that's, that's lying. That's lying to one another. He says, don't lie to one another. After all these sins, then he says, and don't lie to one another. Meaning, don't, don't try and convince one another that these sins are not sins in your life. Don't lie. Don't, stri- don't, don't cover over it. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And this says old self, but it's old man. It's old anthropos. You've put off the old humanity. So don't don't make excuses for the old humanity in your life. That's another way of saying don't lie to one another. Stop making excuses for the dead man in your life. It's dead. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image, in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So there we are back to God and his purpose in creating mankind in his image. We've received that image in Christ. And so he says here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And then we get another one of those Colossians bombs that's just so loaded with with truth but Christ is all and in all Christ is all and in all he really is <laughs> in us we in him and that is the foundational truth Christ is what it means to be a human and we are human is in so far as we are in him and he is in us So then we get to move on to what, what, so we put that off, but there's also some things to put on. And they are, they are, well, I think of in like Revelation where it talks about it was granted to the saints to clothe themselves in garments of white. It's been granted to us to clothe ourselves uh, after we put off and we stripped all the old rotten garments off. We are given just amazing uh, ways of, of living. We're, we've given, it's granted to us to live in this way. And this is the thing. We've got to remember that this is God's work in us by grace, by the Holy Spirit. These aren't things that we go and we resolve, I will put off slander this week. I will not slander. I'm going to grit my teeth and not slander. No, you have to yield. You have to understand. I mean, it's much bigger than that. right? If you're doing that, if you're just resolving, all right, this week I will not do this, then you're just, you got to go read chapter 2, right? Because it says that uh, these types of strategies, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So again, how do we put these to death? We ascend, we set our minds on things above. We get a vision of the man, the human being at the right hand of the Father as the human being that I am created to be and enabled to be by the Holy Spirit. And then I look at these things that I do and I say, no, of course not. Of course not. Cut that off. Cut it completely off because I see Christ. Right? It's not because I've received a, uh, a lesson in how to, how to be a better person. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones. And we can't gloss over this little clause here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. All words that belong to Jesus himself. He is the chosen one. He is holy and he is beloved. That's who we are in him. As much as God hates what's in the old man, he loves what's in the new man. Right? The depths of his wrath are reserved for those things in which we once walked. And the depths of his love are there for us as we are in Christ. And so we put on then because he loves this so much. And we are the people of God in Christ. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. So this really turns toward, there's the things that affect our, our, our as an individual, our ability to image God. All right, that's kind of in verses 1 through 11. And then he turns to, now here's how we live in relationship with one another. So here's who you are as an individual in Christ, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now here's who we are as a community of relationships in Christ. Here's who we are. Above all these, put on love, with which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, as we set our minds on things above, as we proclaim who Christ is and, and what he's like, that word dwells in our hearts richly. And one of the ways that we, <laughs> one of the ways that we encourage one another toward uh, putting off of the old man and, and embracing the, putting on the new man is we tell each other about it. And we sing about it. Let the word of Christ, let the whole gist of this letter, that Christ is all and in all, let that be the central fact of your heart and let that dwell in you richly and let it come forth in song Because when that happens, it says, we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. When we set our minds on things above, the word of Christ dwells in us richly, and it comes out in teaching and admonishment. But it's not a legalistic harping on each other. It's a glorification of who Jesus is. Christ is like this. And so that's why we live this way. Right? And I don't know how this looks practically, how we teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I think as we come together as a church, we should be aware that we are declaring, we're setting our minds on things above so that we can bring that life and appropriate that life into our own lives as individuals and into our life as a body. We do that. Part of the function of worship in our church is teaching and admonishing one another. We're declaring it to ourselves. We're declaring it to one another. Right? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. We sing that all together. That teaches you something. And that admonishes you. If the word of Christ is really behind it. Dwelling in our hearts richly. And whatever we do. right? Whatever you do. In word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the, to God the Father through him. Because we are called to, in every corner of our lives, in every word, in every action, live from a place of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through every breath that I take, through every action that I take. then he just blitzes through <laughs> the entire, I mean, almost the entirety of your life and how this applies. <laughs> just boom, 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 boom. And so these things, you know, we, we can just 
glaze over them, but they're huge. Um, we won't take a ton of time, but wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So he's going to go back and forth between the person who's called to submit and the person that uh, that person is called to submit to. And he says, both of you, both of you in that kind of relationship need to be 100% eyes on the Lord in the way that you conduct yourself in that relationship. So for wives, you submit yourself to your husbands. Why? Because it's fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Remember in chapter 1, he, he was talking, he was asking that God would fill them with the fullness of knowledge so that they could walk in a way that pleases the Lord. This is the very outward expression of having come into an understanding of what pleases the Lord. You can't just say, all right, I'm going to go do these things, and then I'll be pleasing to the Lord. No, these are expressions of a heart that has decided, I want nothing more than to please the Lord. Does that make sense? You can't become pleasing to the Lord by submitting to your husband if that's all you're doing. You become pleasing to the Lord by finding your identity in Christ. And because you understand how you were created as a human being, and because you love it, and you see that that's a beautiful thing that God has done in the way that he created you, you say, oh, yeah, I know, what I, I know what a human is. I know what a female human is. I know why I was created. And then the same thing for husbands. All right, so again, these are not legalistic things. They are the natural outflow of someone who has found their complete identity in Christ. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You know, that's a, that is an important, I mean, that is a huge verse right there. Um, do not provoke your children. You know, provoking, I think one, one good way to, to, add, to, to read that verse is to say, what's, so what's the opposite? Uh, we have do not provoke, and then we have the, the negative result is discourage children. What's the opposite of that? Because that's what we should do, right? <laughs> that's, what we're, that's what we're aiming at. Um, I think when you're provoking your child, you're focused on what really irritates just your flesh about their life. And you're really not helping them grow into their glorious humanity as a child. You're really tr- you're trying to diminish them as much as you can. And so, of course, they are discouraged because they don't know what they're for when all they know is that there's a lot of things that my dad gets angry at that I do. They, they, what are they to do with that knowledge other than just never do those things? What, what's after that, right? And so they're discouraged. They, they don't, I mean, what, what's my life for? I have no, what's my purpose? What, what, who am I? Someone that annoys the authority figure in their life. And that's that. So, I mean, you can see, that of course that leads to discouragement. So we correct and we admonish it. And Ephesians says that it's bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do it the way the Lord does it. Right? Maybe try doing it the way this letter does it. Point to the image of God. What is the image of God? See them as the image of God. Help them understand what in your life is not part of the image of God. That's why we need to stop doing this, because you were created to be a glorious son, a glorious daughter of the Most High. And so don't do that, not because it makes me angry. Don't do that because you will not be able to glorify God, because you will never be who he created you to be. So stop doing that because I see who you are, right? And so that's not provoking, that's nurture, that's admonition toward 
mature humanness, right? Not just get it through and thank goodness back to school, you know, send them off and get them out of here finally, a little peace and quiet around here. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. As you know, God doesn't provoke us and leave us discouraged. He will warn us and he may rebuke us and he may chastise us. But we're never left discouraged after that. We are left understanding who he is and who we are in a much deeper way. We've got to bring that into our parenting. They need to, with every, with every correction, they need to understand why. <laughs> why? And it needs to ultimately lead to encouraging them toward who they are created to be. And then we got bond servants with masters. I think you can. I think you can apply this to, you know, different, more applicable situations in our own lives, on the job, uh, any kind of authority that you have to relate to, uh, maybe a you know teacher at school. Um, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. And I think all of these, you could say, not by way of eye service. Not just because you want to be seen as that, right? As people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Again, why? Because we are setting our minds on things above. I'm not setting my mind on my boss. I'm setting my mind on things above. And I'm relating to my boss, I'm relating to my teacher, I'm relating to my parents, I'm relating to my children from a heavenly perspective and the way things go in heaven. And I bring that down into the way that I operate. So I don't do it to please them. I do it out of an understanding of what pleases God. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And then he addresses the authority. The the powerful in, in the relationship. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Knowing that you have a master in heaven. Nobody is the head honcho. Every authority has an authority. Every authority on earth has an authority. Every husband has an authority. Every president, (laughs) every politician has a higher authority. Every boss has an authority. And um, that master is watching over the way that they exercise their authority and use their power in the earth and, and will judge them accordingly. All right. Whew. Chapter 3 is huge. It's massive. It's rich. Um, but it's awesome. And so set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So this letter demands of us that we find our all in Christ, that we understand who he is, the full implications of his being in us and our being in him. And there's, I mean, you can spend years studying this and you will. The rest of your life, you're going to be coming into Colossians and seeing things that deepen your understanding of that. This chapter, chapter three, brings us face to face with the most common ways in which our lives as they're lived out don't align with the reality of who Christ is. Um, And it's also, I think, the chapter that's easiest to come away from and try and do it the wrong way. (laughs) Because you see, it gets practical, 
And then we want to address it in, in a way that isn't in line with what Paul's been saying the whole time. And so the challenge for us is um, what I've been saying. Can we address this? Can we address these things in our lives with a deep understanding of who Christ is and come from that perspective? Because that's what this letter is calling us to. It's not calling us to fix these things in our lives. It's calling us to understand what a human being is, who Jesus Christ is as the perfect embodiment of a human being, and how his life and our life have become somehow united in such a way where everything about the old way of life that needed to die, died in him, and everything about the new, about the, the way that the humans were always created to live has come alive in him and alive in us with him. And we can now live unencumbered by these things that have plagued us our whole lives, in which we once walked. We can put them away. So we are urged to set our minds, hearts and minds, on life as it is in heaven. And to actively seek to live that out in our daily lives, but to pursue that from a place of, really of awe and wonder and worship, first of all. And then of trusting, not in our own strength and not in our flesh, but trusting in the grace of God to bring this to pass in our lives. Amen? So, it's tricky, you know, it's tricky because we really, we have self-help minds. We crave, we crave fixes. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. There are plenty of fixes around. There's plenty of systems around. And you can't go run off to a system because you are leaving Christ when you do that. You're going outside of Christ to try and live in the way that only being in Christ can cause you to live. Amen? So this is where that challenge of bringing everything back to who Christ is, this is where it can really get real in our lives. Well, I've got this sin. Well, what am I going to do about it? (laughs) That's where the challenge comes in. Do you really understand Christ? Because he goes from sexual immorality all the way up the chain to idolatry. And then you have to understand, oh, did, have I really come into a relationship with the living God and turned from idols? Or do I still serve something that I've kind of made up? Do I live a self-made religion? Called Christianity, I've called it Christianity, or I've called it being in this church. But is it ultimately self-made? I've said this is how to be a good person. Rather than died, identified with Christ in his death, identified with him in his, his resurrection, and understand that I have been raised with him and seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen.